All right, great. Well, I'll go ahead and get started here. Um, so I suppose uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Ian. Uh, my wife, Marie, and I lead one of the home groups. Uh, still fairly new at this. I think this is time three or four at this. I'm losing track. It's all a blur for me. But uh, I love God's Word, and I love the ways that he works through his Word, even though uh, you know a lot of this was written many, many years ago, and especially this passage. We're looking at a passage from the Old Testament in Hosea, and you could think that that was for some folks back in uh, Israel a long time ago, but no, it's for us today. So uh, I just want to encourage you that this passage has really uh, been impactful for me, and I pray that it's impactful for you. Um, you know, it's interesting. I uh, am just reminded that you know God is amazing in his gifts of mercy and his gifts of love, and yet I'm really fickle. Uh, in spite of what he gives me, I often turn to other things that, um, I don't know, they, they seem more exciting at the moment. And God does everything in his power to bring me back to him. He pulls out the stops when it comes to showing me that I'm on the wrong path and my heart's not right with him because he knows that he's the best thing. He's got more than what this world has to offer. And so uh, this passage is all about what he does for wayward people like me and for you. Um, so let's pray this morning. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, Lord, we rely on you, and I also rely on you. I am weak. I am not capable for this task. Lord, let your light shine. Let your word be made clear to Mercy Hill. Don't let me be in the way of your word. And Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine your word to us, make it very clear. Let it be very specific to each person here at Mercy Hill. And show us how great your love is. Let it be very specific to each person here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we love the word here at Mercy Hill. And because of that, uh, we like to make sure you have the word in front of you. Uh, you're not here to hear me. I can assure you of that. You're here to hear the word of God. Um, so if you don't have a word, uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, one of the ushers will give you one to use. Um, and the passage in Hosea that we're looking at, I believe, is on page 751 of the Bible's being passed out. Uh, l- let me start by just saying how much I love the Old Testament. I know that sounds crazy. Most people think of the Old Testament as a God of wrath and lots of laws and kind of that stuff you skip past, and you should really just focus on the New Testament. But that's not true. There is some amazing amazing, heart-enriching truth in the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets. Um, They paint a picture about how immense God's love is, about how he has affections for his people, and also about his intense concern for their well-being because he knows that his people are drawn to other things. Uh, And so through these messengers, through these prophets, uh, God persistently pleads for his people to come back to him. Uh, in fact, God's so serious about it, he devotes almost a quarter of the whole Bible to Old Testament prophets. This is not a portion of the Bible to ignore. There are good things in here that God wants us to pay attention to. Um, so by way of uh, introduction of the whole passage, Hosea is one of those Old Testament prophets. Um, but it, he didn't just call Hosea to preach which he did to many prophets, he actually called Hosea to do something different. In this case, uh, he wanted Hosea to model to them something that um, they could see for themselves. And there was a picture of who God really is, his character. See, one of the problems in Israel and Judah was that they were worshiping other false idols. Uh, They were worshiping a god called Baal. Um, They were sucked right into it. If you look... um, 
on uh, the map that will be here shortly, uh, they were just surrounded by their neighbors uh, that were worshiping this god called Baal, and it was an offense to God. Um, and what God did, he didn't just punish them, which they deserved. He graciously called them back to repentance. This was before God sent them off into exile, and he didn't want them to do that. He wanted them to repent, um, and so he was giving them one other chance. Uh, I do want to warn you this morning, um, I don't see any kids, but maybe uh, there are. If you are sensitive to language, God is incredibly blunt in this passage. It really is incredible how stern God is with his words. I'm not adding any additional words that aren't in his Bible, but I do want to warn you that it is very serious words. And that's purposeful. God wants to awaken our attention with these strong words. Um, And just to show how serious he was about their sin, like I said, God wanted uh, Hosea to model his love. What God called Hosea to do was to marry a woman uh, named Gomer who... uh, would eventually commit adultery against him. And so God told him this in advance. God told him that his wife would uh, be unfaithful to him, and yet what uh, God called Hosea to do was to marry her, to love her, and share his life with her, even though he knew that she would be unfaithful to him. And it's a picture of what God does for us. God calls us to him, and he loves us, but yet we're unfaithful to him. And so... uh, You would think then that in the same way that God would reject us and that uh, Hosea would also be uh, tempted to reject his wife. No, Hosea brought her back. After her unfaithfulness, after her adultery, Hosea called her back into marriage, into the covenant love that he had. Uh, In fact, interestingly enough, she was so into her uh, adultery, Hosea physically purchased her with money and brought her back into his marriage household under his covenant, under his protection, because he wanted to bring her back into relationship with him. And so, you know what? This is amazing, because it shows us how God will do anything for us to woo us back to him. It was so important that Hosea demonstrate to Gomer that he would bring her back by purchasing her. God does the same thing for us today. So uh, one final thing before we get started. I know I'm giving lots of preambles here, but um, I don't want you to get lost. There's actually three stories in this, and I don't want to get it confused. Uh, The first story is the story of Hosea the prophet and Gomer, uh, his wife. Second story is the story of God the Father and Israel. The third story is Jesus Christ and us. And so as you listen to this story, I don't want you to lose track of what God has done for you through the person of Jesus Christ. See yourself in the story of Gomer and the story of Israel. That's us. So let's start by looking at um, Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. This sets up the context for what Israel has done and by extension us. Plead with your mother, Israel, plead, for she is not my wife, and I, God, am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strep her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
Did you guys notice the strong language in this? I mean, it's just, this is the Bible. I mean, why is God using such strong words? He really does want to capture our attention. And he wants us to see that there's something important for us. So I think the first question is, well, why whoredom? Couldn't God have said something else like, hey, you're not obeying my words? Why is he using such strong language? In short, it's because of Israel's obstinate unfaithfulness to God. Um, just to give a bit more detail about what they were doing, um, the Israelites were drawn into Baal worship. Um, Baal was a false god. Um, there's the map I was referring to. It's a little hard to read, but um, if you see Israel on the map, to the north of them was Syria, and to the south of Judah was um, Palestine, and both these countries were worshiping a god called Baal, and it was an idol. And so you see that Israel is surrounded by this false god, Baal, and you would think, well, shoot, it's just a rock shrine. Why is that attractive? Well, in fact, you see, Judah and Israel were at an agrarian lifestyle. They farmed, um, and this false god was a god of fertility, both agricultural fertility and sexual fertility. And so you could just imagine it. Here's this god that was very close to their neighbors. They were worshiping it. The Israel had all these famines. Shoot, we should probably worship this God that is going to provide us with economic prosperity and uh, be able to provide for our physical needs. So what did they do? Uh, They worshipped it. And interestingly, even more, I was so surprised by this. Uh, The beliefs were just, it's almost architected by men or by even Satan, you would say, because there was the agrarian aspect of economic prosperity, but they coupled it with this sexual fertility aspect. So they had these shrines that had these pornographic images on it and shrine prostitutes that the men would sleep with. And that was somehow going to, by extension, bring fertility to their crops. And it was just incredibly alluring for the men of, man, I get to sleep with prostitutes and look at pornographic images and I'm going to have this economically prosperous life. It was just dreadfully alluring for Israel. And uh, it's just sad. You look at verse 5, you can see Israel's reaction to Baal. I will go after my lovers, uh, Baal and other gods, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel mistakenly thought that Baal was her lover. Um, They thought that Baal provided the basic needs of life when it came to food and water and um, clothing. Uh, They didn't look to God to provide that for them, and it was very much a tragic mistake. Um, I know this could sound a little foreign to us. We don't have Baal. We don't have carved rock images, but we do have a modern-day Baal. We do have other things we turn to in our time of need to provide for us. Uh, And oftentimes here in the U.S., it's actually ourselves. Uh, If I need food, uh, it's not God who provides my need. I know that my hard work and diligence is what provides for me. Uh, you know, it's true, maybe we do pray over our food and say, thank you, God, for this. But oftentimes that's just a ritual, and we know deep in our hearts that I going to work and collecting a paycheck was actually what took care of my needs. And that just goes much beyond just food and drink. Our self-reliance uh, goes to the worship of ourself and, for example, our position at work. I don't know about you guys, but here in Silicon Valley, it's very keen and very forefront about our position. Uh, People spend a lot of effort, many hours each day, working hard so they can advance their position, their title, their wealth, and that's everything they live for. And, uh, you know, people will jump from job to job, oftentimes every year or every other year, to get a better position. And uh, that's everything that is in their heart that they're looking for satisfaction for. 
Now, I don't want to say that changing jobs is bad. I mean, sometimes you have to do that, and there is opportunities that you can go after. But I do want to warn us that when our chief aim is to advance our kingdom, advance our title and our position and our income, we are making an offense to God to saying his kingdom is not more important, his provision is not as important as us providing for ourselves, and it's tragic. I also see when I look around, even in myself, that we oftentimes worship our bodies. I mean, just go to Starbucks in Los Gatos on the weekends. You see people that are engaging in these uh, bicycle events. They train in groups so that they can be in marathons, they can be in triathlons, and they are in just incredible shape. Drive around, you see these CrossFit facilities and these yoga facilities, and people are incredibly good-looking. They are able to do things with their bodies that just you wouldn't be able to do on your own. And I'm not saying that exercise in itself is wrong. I mean, shoot, we need it to be physically healthy, right? Um, but I th- the problem is that we oftentimes take that exercise that is good and we make it a God in itself. I want to look good before you because I'll feel good about myself. Uh, yes, there's other good things that can happen with it. You can be you know, connecting with others. You can be uh, relieving some stress. But we take this you know, thing that is a part of our life, but we then turn it into this big God of, I want to be ripped, I want to look good, I want to be that type of person that can be on a magazine cover. And it's sinful. You see, the Lord wants us to find our satisfaction and joy in Him, not in our looks. Um, one other way that I see that's just tragically tragic that we pursue the God of ourself is in lust. Uh, yes, it's God that God created us for sexual relations. He created sex. He created it for, to be enjoyable. Uh, he also created it for the marriage covenant. And um, we often mess that up. We often pursue sexual pleasure in other ways. Um, I think I saw a statistic that something like 40 million U.S. Uh, people look at pornography on a weekly basis. I know that some of you struggle with it. Um, I think the question is, what do you do when your spouse is not interested in sex or does not pleasure you in the way you want them to? What do you do when you're single and you have a lot of strong sexual desires, but you don't know what to do with them? What do you do when you just had a tough day at work and you feel frustrated? How do you get that release so that you feel better? Uh, The challenge is, is that we turn to pornography and we feel entitled. We say, I deserve to feel good. I deserve to have my needs met. And for these sins and other forms of not seeking God as our satisfaction, he is right in judging Israel, and he's also right in judging us. Uh, We have fallen woefully short of the call that he has for us. In Hosea's day, it was socially acceptable for uh, a woman who had been unfaithful to publicly expose her. They would literally take her out in in the square, strip her of her clothes, and she'd be naked before everyone. In a sense, it was the way of the man saying, I'm taking away my protection from you. I am exposing you for what you've done. And uh, God says that he's going to do the same thing to us if we continue in our path. Verse 3 says, Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. When we sin against God, it is an offense to his love. He has provided us protection, and we look for it in other ways. Somehow we get the sense that God is loving, and so therefore he should owe us forgiveness. And that is simply wrong. Our sin deserves to be exposed and judged, 
the only thing we owed is punishment. It's really tragic how we think that God's going to be forgiving because it's in his nature. We deserve punishment. And the the reason for strong language in this passage is because he wants to wake us up to it. He wants us to feel the weight of the path we're on. Um, We've hoard ourselves out to lesser pleasures. We have a pure pleasure in God, and we seek lesser satisfaction. He has something better than what we seek after. You and I, myself, I've committed adultery against the Lord. You've done the same. He's made a covenant with us, and we've forsaken it. Let me take a pause here to talk to the men. This is a really hard passage. We want to be the tough guy. We want to be the guy in face of life's adversity, to be strong and not phased by it. We want to be the knight in shining armor, saving the damsel in distress. But that's not what this verse says. It says that, yes, us guys too, we are the promiscuous wife. We are the one who's been unfaithful to our husband. And we are the ones that need saving. We are the ones that are not strong. We have also played the whore. God is the faithful husband, and we are the wanton wife. Yes, it's an analogy, but it is also reflective of our state. And by God's grace, we can be restored. Yes, we can be faithful husbands, and we can be strong. But first, we have to accept and recognize that uh, we have played the whore. So what does God do with us? Um, (laughs) This is, I think, where you could say, Old Testament, God's going to breathe down fire from hell. And yes, that's what we deserve. He would be absolutely right in just opening up the cosmos and saying, you have sinned, and just exposing us to shame, just like the Israelites did with their adulterous wives. But that's not what he does. He does something else. He woos us. God draws us, the wandering spouse, back into covenant relationship with him. Look at the uh, verse 2. Verse 2 says, Plead with your mother, plead. God emphasizes his heart for Israel to flee from her sin and return to him. God commands Hosea to plead, plead for Israel to return to him. Come back. I know you have sinned. I know that you have been filthy in your rotten sin of adultery. I know that you are ugly in what you've done, but come back to me. Come back to your faithful husband. Through the person of Jesus Christ, you can be restored. Jesus has taken your sin. He has taken the punishment you deserve, and I don't see any of that before me now. Come back to me. We know that, we see it, but it just doesn't feel real to us sometimes. I don't feel that sometimes. When I look at a day that's been tough, I've been working a long week, and I see before me pornography and the allure of some sexually attractive woman versus Jesus Christ on the cross, and it just it feels vague. It, it doesn't feel like it's gripping my heart. The allure for some quick fix, the idol of self wanting to feel good now, is much stronger. So... Like Israel, we need something stronger than that. We need something stronger than just words so we can see it. Our fickleness does not stop God's pursuit of us, and I love that. He is all about drawing his wayward people back to him. He pulls out the stops to make us come back to him. So what do you think that is? What does God do to make us get his attention? Well, verse 6 through 8 tells us, Therefore, 
I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I, the Lord, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore is our key word here. Therefore is our because. It's a causal relationship between our sin and what God does. Because of our sin, God hedges up our way with thorns. Because of our sin, he builds a wall against us. (laughs) This means that God trying to get our attention. He's putting physical things in our path that'll just be blaring lights for us. Uh, This could be everything from a simple annoyance like tripping on the sidewalk. It could also be more severe things like a wife or a husband that's unloving. It could be a disobedient child. It could be a very difficult coworker that is slandering you. Uh, It could also be other forms of illness being laid off. God's very uh, broad in ways that he puts thorns in our lives. Um, but verse clearly, verse 6 clearly says that the purpose of the thorns of the walls is to either make our path unenjoyable or obscure. Simply, we're just not going to like the path we're on. It's not going to feel good. And verse 7 goes on to say that we'll pursue our lustful passions, but we won't be able to reach the satisfaction we desire. We will look for the things we hoard after, but we will not be able to find them. This could mean relationships turn sour. That coveted relationship, uh, or I'm sorry, the coveted position at work could be given to someone else. We could be looking at pornography, and it just doesn't satisfy us in the ways it used to. You see, God is purposely trying to show us that those pleasures no longer have the the joy and, and the satisfaction they once did because he wants to draw us back to him. He may even give you a sports injury. Your race time might degrade. All these are ways that God is trying to get your attention to hedge up your way and say, you're on the wrong path. Now, at first blush, this could sound really manipulative. Why would God do this to me? I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. You might also say, why is God purposely making my life difficult? I thought he was loving. And this is really important. The most important thing and most loving thing God can do for you is get your attention. He wants us to know that we're on the path of destruction. He wants us to know that we will face judgment based on what we're doing, and he wants to draw us back to him. He wants to woo us back to him. Look at verses 7 through 8 again. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. See, God uses these thorns to remind us that all these things are gifts from him. We take those gifts and we try to make it into ours. The gifts of doing well in our job, the gifts of performing well in sports, those are all gifts from him, and yet we somehow think that it's our abilities, and it's all about me, and we take the praise of man, and we elevate that, saying, I'm going to seek that. I'm going to seek performing well. I'm going to seek the praise that, of these other ways that others might affirm me, when really God wants to affirm us. God wants to speak to us, and we should look to him as the one who's the author and giver of all these good gifts. Instead of providing, uh, of thanking God who provides the gift, we misplace the praise to somewhere else, and that's oftentimes our abilities. 
Um, I mean, just take pornography, for example. We, we worship the empty pleasure of a pornographic image when there's real pleasure in, in God himself. And that's not just fake uh, Christian talk. That's real. That's certainly more real than that fantasy woman that you're looking at on the Internet. Um, and when we misplace our affections, he wants to point us back to him. And the most loving thing God can do is put difficulty in your path because sometimes we're just too stubborn to hear him otherwise. So now I'm sure by this point or a while ago you started to ask, does that mean every single thorn that I faced is because I've been sinning and I'm opposed to God? Is every time I see some thorn in my life, some difficulty, some challenge because I'm not obeying him? Well, the simple answer is no. I mean, just look at the Apostle Paul. Uh, We know that he had a thorn in his flesh, uh, and it wasn't comfortable. It was painful. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes that thorn. Um, Let me read that to you. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. The Apostle Paul knew he had a thorn. It's not hard to miss. He just, ouch, they don't feel good, right? And what did he do? Uh, He got down on his knees before God. He said, Lord, this doesn't feel good. Why are you doing this to me? And he pleaded with him three times and said, Lord, take away this thorn. And you know what happened? God said, no, I'm going to give you that thorn. And you know what? Paul didn't bemoan that. He said, thank you. Thank you for the gift. He, he even said that he, um, uh, you know, he, well, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm lost here. <laughs> uh, he boasted about his thorn. He said that this thorn was something that was something to be praised. Why? Because it kept him from becoming conceited. Christ is honored when we are weak. Christ is honored because it shines his strength that much more. And it wasn't because Paul sinned. Uh, That's not why God gave him the thorn. God gave him the thorn because it was a preemptive gift. It was to keep him from becoming conceited. So how can we tell the difference then? Why? I'm sure we all face thorns. If you were to think about it today, I'm sure there are some things in your life that don't feel good. There's some challenges you're facing. How do you know if that is because you're not right with God or because... um, He just wants to keep you right with him. It's a preemptive gift. Well, uh, the simple answer is that in either case, God wants to make you right with him. Uh, Both are a gift from him to keep you right with him. So uh, what what do you do? You do the same thing in both cases. You do what Paul did. You get down on your knees before God. You describe the pain of the thorn. You tell him that it hurts. And you let him know that you want to be right with him. And... uh, Frankly, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the indication to let you know whether or not you're on the right path. And frankly, if the Apostle Paul needed a thorn, I'm pretty sure that we need a thorn as well. So I'd like to close today by just asking you, what thorns are you facing? As you look over your life today, what challenges are you facing? What obstacles are in your path? Is your way obscure? Uh, you might be seeking significance in the opinions of others and not the Lord. Uh, you might be finding that you're elevating the fulfillment that comes from a hobby and feeling good about performing well in that hobby. 
You might also be finding yourself seeking financial security, and that comes from uh, having a big bank account, when in reality the Lord wants to be your security. Um, You also might find that um, you're seeking for pleasure in sinful ways, and the Lord is calling you back to him. And frankly, you may have never come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Lord, and treasure, and he's putting thorns in your path because he wants to get your attention. Um, So come to him. The Lord is trying to get your attention. Um, And again, like I said, what God is calling us to do is the same thing the Apostle Paul did. Uh, The first thing he wants you to do is to act. He wants you to notice those thorns. Yes, we oftentimes feel the pain, but we don't notice it. We we have a sense of just saying, yes, there's some pain in my life, and we might talk about it, but we don't really take heed of the pain of it. So notice it. Really take stock of it. Don't ignore them. Uh, the the uh, difficulties in our path are God's gift. They're purposeful to wake us up. And then once you notice it, pray. Go to him. Don't just complain about it. Don't go to the bottle. Don't go to the pornography. Don't go to some hobby. Go to him. Pray to him. Take the time to earnestly seek his face. Take the time to confess your sins. Take the time to admit the pain of the thorns. They are painful. Don't lie. God knows that he put them there to be painful. And ask God to draw your heart back to him. We need him to do that. And of course, you need to obey in faith. Listen to what God tells you and follow through. Leave your adultery and follow your faithful husband. That's why it's there. Um, And actually, as the band comes up, I'd like to close by just reading the second half of chapter 2 over you. I'm going to adjust the words a little bit, but it applies just as much to the Israelites as it does to us today. God persistently throughout his word gives us very strong words of warning about the path we're on and is trying to gain our attention by putting thorns in our path. But he also has incredibly strong words for alluring you back to him. He does this because he's affectionate for you. He wants you to be made right with him. He doesn't want you to face the judgment in the final day. So listen to the last half of chapter 2 here. This is what the Lord says that he will do for you. Therefore, behold, I, God, will allure you. I will bring you back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. There I will give you your vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, the valley of trouble, the valley of your thorns, the valley of the walls that I've put in you. I will make that a door of hope. And there you shall answer in the days of your youth, as in the time when you came out of the land of Egypt, that is the land of your slavery to sin, the land of your suffering. And in that day declares the Lord, when you will call me, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall remembered by name no more. That means that you will no longer remember the name of pornography. You will no longer remember the name of your pride and your kingdom and your position, but you will remember the name of the Lord. His name will be on your lips. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. What that means is the Lord will protect you. He will be your protection. You won't have to find protection in your bank account. He will take care of you. He will be your shelter and your provision that you can rely on. He will cause you to lie down in safety. 
And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. All these things are a gift from God so that you would know him, that you would know the pleasure of being in right relationship with him, of knowing that your adultery against him, your whoredom against him, does not satisfy And you'll know him. You'll know the joy of being in his presence. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess before you right now, Lord. We confess that we have committed whoredom, adultery against you, against your covenant love for us. You are so faithful. You are a God who is passionate about his people, passionate about drawing them back to you, Lord, draw us. We know that we need it. We know that you give us thorns because of your love for us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear your word. That we would come back to you and know that you have so much more satisfaction in your presence than these idols. So, Lord, please woo us. Woo us back to you. Let us confess with open arms our sin before you. Let our hearts know the joy of you, not just in words and in thoughts, but in reality, in our emotions. Lord, let us feel your love. We want to be wooed back to you, Lord, so please do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. And I just encourage you, I know um, strong words here, words that we often don't say about ourselves, about us committing adultery, about us... Uh, being whores, playing the whore. But that's what God says about us. That's what he says is our state when we turn to other idols and not to him. And he's doing it because of his affectionate love for you. He's doing it for drawing you back to him. And it's not just words. He demonstrates it with thorns. And those thorns are not manipulative. They're not there to torture you. They're there with the explicit purpose to draw you back to him. He's trying to get your attention. Don't ignore him. Let those thorns draw your heart back to him. It's a gift from him. It's a preemptive gift so that you can be made right with God and tender before him. Uh, This morning, uh, Jason and Patty's group will be up here to pray for you, whatever you need, uh, whether it be a thorn in your life, a wall that you feel like is there in your path. God wants to speak to you. If you have something else, if you have a physical problem, um, please come up here for prayer. I mean, that's why we're here. Uh, We want you to leave today with the Lord over you, with his word over top of you, with him, uh, frankly, changing your heart. So please come up here. Um, We've got people that will pray for you. Don't leave today without having the Lord uh, work in your life.